happy but never satisfied. Let's, uh, let's do it. Okay. What's up, team? Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Tim Morrill, and we are talking about performance. Today, I am thrilled to have this <laughs> Tina Booth join me. Welcome to the show. Very happy to be here. Tina, you are one of the most influential people to ever be an Ultimate. Let's think. You're inducted to the Hall of Fame this year. Correct. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, you've been coaching for 30 Four years? 34, 35 years. I took three years off to get certified to teach in there. But we could go through a list of accolades and uh, probably spend the first 15 minutes just talking about that, but I think it's better just a lot of that will come out as, uh, as the episode unfolds. And here's my thought process. I think okay. that we should go through the lineage of your coaching, where you mm -hmm. started, um, and then move into, you're really well known for uh, your curriculum and um, practitionership in mental toughness. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of our community could get a lot out of hearing your philosophy there. And then really neat, I got a lot of questions from, uh, from our community that uh, I wanted to ask you. So okay. let's, uh, does that sound good? We'll start. Yeah, that sounds great, that sounds great. So 35 years ago, yeah, like, what was, uh, how did you find Ultimate and how did uh, you end up becoming an Ultimate coach? Um, well, I played a little bit in the early 80s. I was at grad school at Cornell. I met the uh, men's team there, and there had been a women's team in the past few years, and I kind of revived it with a couple of friends of mine. So I played in um, the early 80s. I remember going to a tournament in Rutgers, and I think it was the first women's tournament in the Northeast, and it was Rutgers, New Jersey women versus Bosnell which was in Boston, our Boston friends and the Cornell friends. Okay. And at that point, there were no, um, there's no college team, there were barely any club women's teams. So we all just played in the same tournaments together. So I did that, uh, I moved to DC, I played with them for a little bit, I then played with like the number two team out of Boston, traffic, uh, for a little bit, and then I decided to become a teacher, and I went back to school at University of Rhode Island, and then I was certified, and my first job was on an island off Connecticut called Fisher's Island. Cool. It was really cool. I got a house, I got a lot of money, and I only had 12 kids, grades seven through 12. So the door would open, and seventh grade would come in, and this young girl would come and sit down. Yeah. Um, so there, I did a little bit of disc golf, but there weren't, I mean, there just weren't enough people to play. Right. Um, my next job was a Amherst at Amherst Regional High School, and that was 89. And I started, you know, I just pretty much started with whoever was late leaving my classroom. You know, like there'd be like six kids like, oh, you guys want to come late first? Yeah, okay. And I, you know, I so said, we're going to play Sunday at two. Okay, because that was the only time we could get fields. And I remember I was throwing with a kid named Jesse Holstein, I was teaching how to throw a flick. Four people showed up on a Sunday. Gorgeous spring day, and I said to myself, I said, Tina, Tina, this is never going to work. It's never going to work. You're never going to have a program. You're never going to have a team. And at that point, I still was kind of playing. So I just wanted like 13 kids to show up afterwards, and after school, and we would play. Um, 
So, I kept going and kept going. We had a, we had a mixed team to start out with, A and B. And then eventually, I guess it was 92, I decided that if we're going to you know, grow this ultimate thing, we had to have a tournament. So that's when I found the Anderson Invitational, which is the oldest high school tournament in the country. And the first year we had Bronx Science came up and they brought four boys teams and two girls teams. And then I had like maybe eight teams. And you know, it's, it's the first tournament. They rented a bus from New York City. They show up, I, you know, go up the stairs like, oh, I'm so excited. The Frisbee tournament's gonna start. And this one kid from Bronx Science comes out. He looks around the Hammersfields and he goes, he looks at me and goes, no one told me we were coming to the fucking boonies. <laughs> I'm like, okay, okay, Sally Sunshine. Yeah, so uh, anyway, you know, 92 was the first invitational. We kept plugging away and plugging away. And then in 98, my good friend from Columbia High School, uh, David Karuba, and I decided we were going to start uh, high school nationals. And there had been one in the past, but again, like I really like building things. I really like building things. So, so we started one in 98, and um, that went, that morphed into, uh, the UPA at that point didn't really want us to do nationals for a lot of reasons, but eventually they came on board and we continued to have high school nationals, which then morphed into Easterns and Westerns and Centrals, and now it's kind of disappeared into the ether because we're trying to focus on state championships. Right. And then, and now another high school invitational has popped up in Chicago, I think. So it's just, you know, it's just, you see this same cycle over and over. Right. Now that, so it sounds like you had a vision for yourself to be a coach. You're talking about that first time you said, Tina, this is never going to work. Like you. That says to me that you kind of had a vision for what you wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, at the, I mean, I was starting small. You know, like you always I, knew you wanted to be a coach. I knew. I, I mean, teaching and coaching to me is the same thing. And I was an English teacher, and you know, teaching outside after school, teaching frisbee. That's a really fun way to spend your yeah. afternoon. And yeah, I had an idea, um, but you know, and I'm sure you know this from just building your business. You just kind of like one step in front of the other, and sometimes you don't necessarily sit down and say, here's my larger goal. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that for quite a while, right. because I was you know, I was a new teacher, and teaching at Amherst High School was uh, very rewarding, but a very intense job. Right. And um, so, yeah, I mean, our first game was against my friend's team, Greg Black, he had a team out in the Cape, and uh, we drove out there in the yellow school bus and played them, and we were losing the first half. And this is how little I knew. We're losing the first half, and I thought, wow, how about if we force Flick in the second half, because I know they don't have Flicks. Woo, yeah, advanced coaching. And then we beat them, and I, I knew we had to get them from the program to continue, like I knew that. Um, yeah, force Flick, I hear it's a good well, it's a good choice. Right. Oh my goodness. Just let me pause really quick yeah. because I want to, if we can just, um, this way because of the light, so if you yeah. can just, then we'll have a little bit mm -hmm. better shot. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'll do better. 
so these early stories, we could spend a whole episode oh, doing my this. Goodness, and this yeah. is, I was just telling Russ, because we're going through all these questions, stuff I want to ask, and uh, mm -hmm. going through the Slack forums, and he's like, sounds like you need three or four hours. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, we're not doing three or four hours. So I'm not that interested, <laughs> but I do have good stories. So let's, uh, let's just talk, while we're coming up, thinking about your uh, come up as a coach, mm -hmm. where did the Nutsy camp and your vision for Nutsy play into that? Again, <laughs> I... Uh, I knew that there was a town rec department called LSSE, Leisure Supplemental Services and Education or something. And I knew that they ran, you know, like a learn how to speak Italian or, you know, a soccer camp. And I said, oh, I'm gonna try a soccer, I mean, I'm gonna try an ultimate day camp. And I don't really know what year this was, was early 90s sometime. So we put it together, I met with them, they like, yeah, that'd be great, we did the whole thing. And not enough kids signed up, and we had to cancel it. Aww. And I'm like, this is never going to work, Tina. <laughs> so then I think I waited a couple more years. And by that time, uh, Jim Pistrang, who coaches the middle school program, he had been doing work. You know, it just it, it had gone through a couple of iterations of uh, growth. And so we did the day camp, and it was really successful. And at one point, I think like we would ha have like a hundred kids playing in like two or three different sessions. And then they would get to like 14 or 15 and then you were, had outgrown day camp. Uh, like, so I know, so that's when I first met Russell Wallach. And I have this picture of him, which I cannot find. When he was a little kid, he took one of those mesh disc bags and put it over his whole body. And I took a picture of him on the ground. I gotta find that. Yeah, you should find that. I will find that. Anyway, so, so, it, uh, so um, I'm like, okay, well, they've outgrown day camp, but they still need more. So in 2001, I decided to uh, found the National Ultimate Training Camp. And we had 28 kids the first year, one week. Sam Canner was a camper, Emily Bacher, you know, a lot of kids who went on to really illustrious uh, careers. And so 28, and then we just kept doing it and doing it, and then we added another week. You know, now we're at a camp, you know, that, you know, has 300 kids, three to 400 kids uh, every summer, spread out over the weeks, and, um, you know, we're looking to expand. Right. That's what I think is so neat about this. There's so many coaches and athletes that have come through your program in th over 35 years that have gone on to be just very big influencers in the sport. Mm -hmm. um, coaches starting their own businesses, uh, captains of teams, just star players. And a lot of that is because of you and your influence. And the National Ultimate Training Camp is another way to do that, just to develop leaders. And we're talking about it. It sounds like there's a really, you're making a little bit of a shift in the way you're doing camp structure this year. Yes. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So usually we do four weeks of camp. And we have three almost sold out weeks. And then the fourth week in July, for whatever reason, it's family vacations, whatever, has never really done you know, as well as we would like. And we've tried Nutsy Girls, and Nutsy Advance, and Nutsy Middle School. And so what we decided to do is take away that last week, sell out the first three weeks, which will be a whole lot of fun, and we can just you know, crank out the weeks. And then in the week before, we're going to start training coaches because if I had a nickel for every email or text I got saying we need a coach, 
I could retire with millions of dollars. <laughs> so uh, my, my uh, feeling is that it's time to, I mean, I've always been doing this, but it's time to formalize, formalize the coaching um, staff of you know, people that I can, that I can reach. And uh, you know, I've watched a lot of coaching, and some of it's really good, and some of it is just basic poor teaching and poor role modeling. So, um, you know, so we're gonna approach it from that way and we're also gonna teach them, you know, like how to modify drills. So today when we had our practice with UMass, we're, we're going to do a very basic drill and Russ came up with, hey, let's change this a little way, a little bit so we can have them cut under and then cut out, which we hadn't really been doing it. And, you know, learning how to tweak and bring another drill up to the next level is something that you really have to be taught. Yeah. I mean, maybe some people can intuit it, but you know that's so that's the kind of thing, kind of things we like to do. Awesome! So yeah. coaching retreat this year. Coaching retreat. It's going to be camp too, because it's going to we're going to have some fun, silly games. Coaches need camp too. Yeah, coaches need camp too, <laughs> and uh, we have to bring you on and teach thrilled. some basics uh, to these folks. And yeah, it's going to start on. Uh, Friday evening, full day Saturday, full day Sunday, leave at noon on Monday, so people only have to take one day off. Sweet, we'll make yeah. sure we link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I can't wait, so I really can't wait. You just went into a little bit of the coaching stuff, which is, mm -hmm. I really wanna dig into the meat of that, but let's just finish kind of big picture resume. Um, mm -hmm. So, founder of National Ultimate Training Camps, you've coached, you coached Amherst Regional High School for how many years before you went on to coach UMass? Uh, I coached for, say like 21 years maybe um, and also I want to so I also wanted to say that you know as we were doing the national ultimate training camp in 98 I coached the boys uh, who was U19 at that point world's team um, with Michael Baccarini and we won gold for the first time ever uh, for that program and Michael and I we had known each other as competitors we got to be very, very good friends, and then we wrote um, the book, uh, Essential Ultimate, Coaching, Teaching, and Playing. And that came out in 08, maybe? Nice, so we'll, we'll link to that on the site too. But yeah. So that book with Michael Baccarini, that's kind of neat because it's there's these two high school programs that are just the most dominant programs in all of the, the US, and that's Paideia High School and Amherst Regional High School. And Amherst is your program, and Michael Baccarini's program is Paideia. And I think that that is really a gift to the ultimate community by, you know, not being rivals, rather working together yeah. and saying how can we feed, how can we, uh, you know, empower the ultimate community by combining our knowledge and putting it out into a book. Yeah. Yes. It felt. I mean, it took us six years to write it just because we lived in different wow. places, um, and we switched out every other chapter because we weren't together. I mean, we actually could have writ written a lot together, um, but then the book would not be out still right. yet. So, um, yeah, it was really fun to do. And then we put, in terms of all the um, people who modeled, you know, modeled or for us, you know, we had a good mix of Amherst players and Paideia players. So we had Lila Tunnell, and we had Wesley Chow, and we had Jason Simpson, and I mean, it's really funny if you look, you know, if you want to go see Wesley Chow, you look like he's 12 years old. It's worth the price of the book, particularly right. if you live in Boulder. Did you do a little DVD with that too? Yeah, they did that. Uh, yes, we did. 
Yeah. I think. I don't I just know. remember seeing videos of like the throwing drills with Jason Simpson and Mark Bailila and um, yeah, I, I can't really quite remember. It was just like a, yeah. a, you said UPA, for those people that don't know UPA, that's Ultimate Players Association, right. which has become USA Ultimate. <laughs> a lot of people are re rebranding. <laughs> yeah. Do you like that, re the rebrand? Yeah, yeah, we I really don't. I can't. I can't. Yeah, we shouldn't go too deep into that. We can't. Yeah. Because okay. that will be a five-hour conversation. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll do that another time. Okay. Maybe off-camera, let's see. Yeah, maybe off-camera. So any other national teams or teams outside of UMass and uh, Amherst that you've coached? Uh, I coached Siege Ultimate, number two team out of Boston, two summers ago, which was really fun. My cousin's child, Jackie Booth, asked me to coach, so of course I said yes. Um, but it just proved to be too much. I was coaching... UMass up until Nutsy and then Siege and you know I loved coaching them but I just couldn't drive to Boston and, and maintain what I needed to maintain at home. So Siege is a women's team. Yeah, Siege is a women's team. So the bulk of your career has been men's. Uh, mixed. Little I coached Amherst College women one year, uh, but mainly men. Yeah. Okay. So I retired from coaching uh, the high school boys and. You know, Charlie announces it on Ulti World or whatever. And when within 45 minutes, my phone rings and I pick it up, and it's Kevin Norton, who is now playing at UMass, and I had coached in high school. And I pick it up, I go, Kevin, I'm never going to coach UMass. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Okay, next month. So that was October, September, October. Phone rings again. Kevin, I'm never going to coach UMass. So for four months in a row, he called me. I'm like, I'm never doing it. I'm retiring. I'm going to become a burger. I'm going to have a great organic garden. You know, I'm going to write a couple articles and that'll be it. Mm -hmm. So by January, he's like, well, just come, miss, come meet with us. So I met with him in town. It was snowing like crazy. And it's me and three captains who don't know me, you know, including Kevin. And uh, so they're pitching it to me and they're like, you can be assistant coach. Um, you don't have to travel. We just want you to run our practices. I'm like, oh, okay. They said if you do want to come to a, a tournament, you don't have to drive in the van with the boys. You can just sit there. I'm like Kevin. I'm never driving in a van with a group of college boys ever. My whole life. So then I said, well, okay. Well, how much money? And they said, five hundred dollars. And I leaned forward. Swear to God, I said, you know, so you're Kevin, and these are the two guys who don't know go, Kevin, I'm a big fucking deal, and I'm not doing anything for 500 bucks for a season. So they doubled it. I was the assistant coach. We made nationals for the first time in 26 years. I may have had something to do with it. The fact that Jeff Babbitt started that semester also probably had a lot to do with it. Um, yeah, and now I'm in my sixth year. I have to remember that. When you say no to something, if I keep pushing and pushing, then maybe you'll say <laughs> yeah. yes eventually. Yeah, they wore me down. <laughs> so when did Russell come into the picture? Russell came in, he was living in Boston, and then he was moving back. Oh, I guess he was still in Boston. I don't know, he just texted me one day and said, you, you want some help coaching UMass, man? And I said, oh, ultimate God, you've been very, very, very good to me, and this is the best. Yes. So he, he commuted, uh, you know, his folks were living here. He hadn't moved here, back here yet. So he commuted a little bit. He would come to tournaments, but it was pretty much I was the head coach and he was the assistant coach. 
And then I think the following year we decided to become co-coaches. And then this year we brought on Rusty Ingold Smith because we just, you know, it's 25 guys and we want to develop everyone to the best of our ability. And two people is not enough. Um, and I look at some of these larger programs, you know, and they've got their five coaches dressed in, you know, cappy pants and ties. I'm like, okay, we don't have that yet. So, um, yeah. So having you come in, that's part of kind of like being a assistant coach, having Brett Grauman come in and work with the younger guys. You know, the more we can bring in, as you know, the better. Yeah, filling in different gaps yeah. too. Um, and how did the team finish last year? Uh, it's disappointing. We finished, we got knocked out in pre-quarters by uh, University of Washington. Okay. And the year before, we made it to the semis, okay. um, which was our highest finish. So. So we're in there, you know? Right. We're, you know, I'm happy to be in the top 10. Yeah. I think that's where we are right now. We, can, know, we went to a couple of nationals, ranked first. Um, only Russell and I could handle that pressure. The team, it was just too much, you know? It was just too much being ranked first. Um, so for them, I think it's better to be going after something rather than trying to keep something. Yeah, interesting. Well, they are extremely motivated, that's for they sure. They are, I can't believe it. This morning, you know, I was there, I was a little bit late, but Russell told me they were there at like 8.15, it's 13 degrees, the field is set up, they're throwing, and you know, then moved into their dynamic warm-up. Like I can't, I couldn't really be happier in terms of that. Well, and they all got their lift in last night. They got, all got their lift in, they worked with the double sessions with you yesterday. Yeah. Uh, they came back the day before and we just did some scrimmaging. Today's a double session. We did spacing and timing this morning. Uh, we're going to work on horizontal this afternoon. You know, they don't have any schools, so they have to, and they just can't be that distracted. Right. You know. That's so neat that they are all staying here. I, don't, I wonder if any other college programs do that. Mandatory stay here. They're almost like being full-time athletes right now. Right. It's <laughs> awesome. It is. It is. It'd be really nice if you know some of the real athletes would let us go into their locker room. I mean, uh, uh, weight room. Weight room. That'd yeah. be nice. Maybe well, I can uh, reach out to the varsity strength coach at some point. And, uh, Give it a try. Yeah, we'll we, see. We've tried. I've tried. So this is a good place to transition into some of the uh, mental toughness things mm -hmm. because one thing that uh, in the huddle this morning you said, or yeah, you said who had a good practice and who had a big practice mm. and I'm like huh because you know somebody's like one person said they had a big practice or is it oh whoa like, yeah what, that's a big deal what, what is this yeah <laughs> uh, I mean I, I again I uh, work with Dr. Goldberg who lives like two miles that way and he is a sports psychologist and has really uh, been he's been my mentor and my friend and he comes and works with my teams and I've pretty much absorbed everything he's taught, you know, plus, uh, you know, plus I've done a lot more work than, than, him, than, he, than he has given me. Um, so the concept is really easy. Um, you know, you've always heard, I'm sure, oh, this is a big game, we've got to bring it, it's a big game. Pats have a big game this coming, this coming weekend. Um, and that's fine to frame it that way as long as you've been doing the work all along. And I think a lot of times people are like, oh, well, I had a lazy practice, but I can really bring it when it's a big game. Mm -hmm. And my belief, along with thousands of other sports psychologists, is like you can't replicate what you don't practice. 
And so we frame it a different way. And the three ways you can frame it uh, are having a big practice, or a good practice, or a struggle practice. Okay. And you know, it's a self-assessment, and it's basically, if you drift, can you bring yourself back to the task at hand? So, for example, it doesn't have to be a layout block, although that shows that you're probably more focused. Um, but let's say you're uh, you're doing some, uh, whatever, you're just doing a drill, and you start worrying about what you're going to have for dinner, or the C you got on an exam, and you let all these things reside in your head. If you have a big practice, you can get rid of them and focus on the task at hand. A good practice means you do that you know, most of the time, and a struggle practice is when you are completely defeated by the distractions in your brain. And that shows up with dropping the disc, turfing it, not really listening to the coaches, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any strategies to center athletes to get them into that presence? Um, yeah, I mean, you can do a mantra, you can do visualization, you can do deep breathing. Uh, we do a lot of that as we get closer towards, to, you know, closer to our more competitive season. Uh, sometimes I'll bring them in and say, halfway through, and I'll say, okay, who's having a struggle practice? And they'll raise their hand and say, do you realize you can choose to change that right now? Because that's what it's like in a, in a tournament or a game. You know, you, you think your team is doing well, and then there's a dropped pull, or a turf throw, or, you know, um, a, two, two or three drops. You've got to be able to reset yourself. You can't go down that slippery slope of, of distraction and failure. And that's a good segue into a thing that I saw in the IRCA conference is you talking about the difference between semifinalist teams and the rest of the teams. Mm -hmm. And this idea of thinking during the game versus knowing. Right. What is that about? Okay, so... Um, Okay, so you want to think during practice. And like when you were training them yesterday, you want them to think about... Um, railroad tracks. Railroad tracks, yeah. right. You, whatever, one of your cues, you yeah. want them to do that. When we start playing and incorporate everything they've taught, you've taught them, I don't want them thinking actively about railroad tracks. I want them to just do it. Right. I want it to be unconscious. So what happens is, uh, Thinking is slow and knowing is fast. And so you think during practice and training, and then you know when you compete, mm. okay? So for example, uh, we use a bicycle. You know, you learn how to ride a bike, and when you're actually pretty good at it, you don't think, oh, I'm gonna push down, come back up, be at the top, push down again. You just do it Sorry, unconsciously. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and so that's what we wanna have happen. And when you compete, and I would use this for a semifinalist team, although you know it can really happen at any point in the tournament. Um, if you compete and you get nervous, and you're thinking too much, and usually thinking means a little bit of panicking, the blood in your um, extremities goes to your heart and your lungs and your brain. It's just physiological. Like there's probably very few people who wouldn't stop that from happening, and the way you would stop it would be to calm yourself down. So, um, so let's say a kid turfs a throw, uh, turn, they're on offense again, gets it, 
chirps it again. By this time he's panicking and maybe chirps it three or four more times. Okay. Um, that is pretty much a meltdown. And since the blood is where it needs to be, which is your heart and lungs and brain, it has left the extremities and you cannot throw and you cannot run fast. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, you, you watch a lot of March Madness? No, I don't really watch any TV at this okay. point. <laughs> Unfortunately, my you life will be... Do you watch any... Do you watch any... I haven't watched a movie or... Okay, for those of you who watch March Madness, so for those of you who watch, it's really interesting because I've seen this happen year after year. So, it's a uh, tie game and they're at overtime and there's a foul and the guy who makes the foul shot will put them ahead by four or one or whatever. And inevitably, if they do miss, they miss it short and it clangs off the front of the basket or doesn't even reach it, air balls, because he doesn't have enough blood mm -hmm. in his fingers. It just makes sense. Rarely will they clang off the back of the basket. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So I think, you know, I, I know there's a, you know, all this lack of understanding about what mental toughness is in the ultimate community and other communities. But it really is just physiological. So you've got to keep, um, you've just got to keep your brain calm. Mm -hmm. And you have to be, you know, thinking is in the front of your brain, you've got to be in the knowing. Right. Um, so today, for example, when we were uh, talking about cutting, you know, we blew the whistle and Russ went out and said, you know, this cut was great, but then you didn't clear enough, and so we need to see you repeat doing that. And so we had someone do that. Um, you know, we're not going to do that in a tournament. Right. It's just going to happen. And, and in general, the other thing I was going to say is, in general, when you're coaching in a tournament, you can't say too much. Right. Because they can't absorb it. Right. You don't want them to be able to absorb it. So when I have a huddle, uh, or Russ and I have a huddle, we say zero things or one thing or two things. And that's it. Because I'm sure you've been in huddles where we do this and we do that, and, da -da -da -da, and then everyone says, you know, one more thing, one more thing. Zero has been absorbed. Right. So usually what we would say is, uh, marks have to move your feet more, uh, stop the arounds, and clear harder than you want. Right. That's it. Yeah, it's hard to restrain yourself sometimes because you know there's so many other things, but it's just the nature of psychology. It is, not gonna yeah, they it. can't do it. Yeah. They can, and they shouldn't be able to do it. Right. And I think a lot of times with teaching and with coaching, people just feel like you can just slam someone's head with all this information and sort of stay. It just doesn't. Right. It just doesn't, Tim. Yeah, for sure. And that's one of the reasons that um, it's a blessing being able to coach with you. I mean, yesterday we had two and a half hours at the field and mm -hmm. Russ and I talked for a while about what we're going to do. And it's like, there's all these things that we want to do. But after about 15 minutes of talk, we're like, look, if we're going to get the most out of it if we just do linear, uh, just all linear. We're going to do the first block. It's going to be acceleration. We're going to teach the drills. <laughs> right. Just have them hammer down and get reps on these basic cues. And then we're going to transition that FPT into an SST drill with some disc work, some uh, throw and goes, take a break, <coughs> and then go into linear speed. And, and I'm sorry, then go into top end speed and just cue it and get reps and pair corrective exercises with every rep of our uh, tempos to get a better yeah. cycle kick. And it was like a really good example of less is more. And in many ways, I'm like, oh, can we have another, another hour to do this? And can we add this cue and that cue? But 
they really grew a lot in that time just because we kept it simple like that. So yeah, you just I mean it is it is, and that's where the teaching part comes in because when I was a beginning teacher, I would want to teach everything. Let's say about a novel I was teaching. No, I just want them to like the novel that we read and think about it on another level other than the, the plot. Right. And however we get to it, it's fine. Right. I don't need to give them my interpretation of, you know, Shakespearean symbol. Who right. cares? Right. You know, who really cares? Uh, it's a little bit different with you because you do have all this information you have to give. But again, you want them to be absorbing, you know, 85 to 90 percent of it. Right. And if they're at 65 percent. You know, it's interesting because I was there for that part when they transitioned to that disc throwing uh, with the, uh, I can't remember what it was. Just like a box up line. Yeah, box up, yeah. yeah. The energy they had there was great. Yeah. It was great because they want to run around and throw. I mean, they are of course. kids. Yeah. And, and that carries into the next thing you're doing. Right. Yeah, so. And that was Russ, it, pretty much him saying, hey, let's combine this. And that's why right. it's neat because the four spheres idea and finally really building out the FPT curriculum and framework and it's mm -hmm. time now to really kind of blend that with the sports skills training and there's usually not a lot of opportunities to do that in traditional training uh, except for like when I'm in Baraka and we're training six days a week yeah. but in this uh, kind of environment it is possible and it's really neat because I feel like long term if the FPT coach or the sports performance coach can really have a good working relationship right. with the sports coach then you can have a you know you can just create better athletes yeah. and it's I mean even talking with Brutes coach last year he's you know says something about I think we need to be better at defensive footwork and I'm like yeah and then I'm like you know starting to go into defensive footwork ideas with them and it's like that's kind of a cool relationship yeah. so uh, yeah holistic program building um, and knowing Bruce thinking I think that's huge now if I asked you what the idea of the right road versus left road is yeah, I mean, I stole that from Goldberg as I've stole, stolen everything. Um, yeah, I mean, right road just means you're going to take the right right choice more than you're going to take the left road. And left road is La La Land, and that's where all your buddies are, and that's why I'm not going to do the moral performance today, but I'll do it tomorrow, and then I'll stack up on the weekends, and then I don't I do not do any of it. Yeah. You know, we have kids who didn't, didn't do any of it. Yeah. And I can't even tell you how much we promoted it and send out emails. So that's someone who's chosen to do the left road. Um, you know, with that said, I'm particularly thinking about this kid. You know, he had a lot of academic challenges. Uh, I mean, not only you know challenges in terms of his time. He's an architecture student. He was up all the time. You know, he couldn't. He should have done it, but he couldn't. And hopefully, this semester will help him get to that point. Um, Right road means that you're, you know, have balance in your life and you're eating really well and you're trying to get enough sleep and, um, you know, you're choosing to have a balanced social life versus being face down on a linoleum floor Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. You know, there's, we can have some balance in right. there. Um, and then it's also like a practice. Uh, you know, we tell them they have to jog through from drill to drill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, I know there's certain players that if, if my back is turned, they don't jog. You know, that's dumb. Yeah. You know, it has to come from from within. The motivation has to come from within. Right. 
and we can set up a framework and we can certainly yell at them, we can certainly teach them the best of our ability, but um, you know, fake buy-in only hurts the person who's fake. Right. I mean, it can hurt the team for sure. So if, where does that motivation come from? Like one thing Russ said that you teach is this idea of having a big enough why. Mm -hmm. How is that? Big enough why is like why are you, you know, why are you doing it? What do you get out from it? So people, so I mean, you know, we have almost our entire team here, as we said, a week before classes start. They all have a big enough why. They want to make a serious run in a national championship. They love and respect their teammate and their, the team and I believe the coaches. Um, you know, well, you know, they, they do want to do it for us and for themselves and for their teammates. And if you don't have a big enough why, then you are making up excuses or being fake hurt or coughing into the telephone when they call, <laughs> I'm sick, I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I've seen it all, yeah. Yeah, I've seen it all. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's like why you do anything. Right, and do you share this as a team, or do people? Uh, we haven't done it this year. We brought Goldberg in before. At this point, uh, I'm not that concerned. They all have a big enough why, particularly right. after when I showed up on Sunday morning in 13 degree weather, and they were all there, right, working out for sure. That's so the, they show they show us that. That's the Simon Sinek book. Did you ever read Start no. with Why? He just has this thing called the Golden Circle, and it's like, what? how and in the middle is why like right everything matters that's that that's really good. matters um so you mentioned teammates what's this idea of no neutral teammates yeah that's i mean i'm on twitter a lot uh n-u-t-c underscore amherst and, like it. Uh, okay and um yeah i i follow a lot of sports psychologists and quotes and that's what i found that last year i don't even know it was, there's no such thing as a neutral teammate you know you can't be switzerland on a team if you're not actively trying to get better and make your teammates better and contribute to the team, you are hurting your team. And I know that there's this belief uh, on a lot of teams like, okay, I'm not gonna do everything that they ask, but I'm just gonna be in this little neutral area where I'm gonna get a lot of the benefits without having to work hard. Mm -hmm. And that's destructive. Mm -hmm. That's well, it's kind of what Russell was doing yesterday, you had this idea of like trying to win the practice? Mm -hmm. How does that work? Yeah, that's one of Russ's thing. I don't, you know, it, it's a way, like, even though I say we want them to be internally motivated, obviously we, you know, we're their coaches and we're trying to help them through stuff. Um, I think it's just like bringing in the energy because I think, particularly in the morning when they're really tired, they're just kind of, I want to coast in that neutral teammate spot versus I don't really want to try that hard because that's pain. And, and we may not, and I may not do it well. So I think when people choose not to do that, it's a combination of being afraid of pain and being afraid of failure. Right, and that's another thing that you teach is this idea of being comfortable or comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah, and um, that's pretty straightforward. But is there a way that you train that and instill that in athletes? Um, you know, we try to come up. We've got a, we did a couple of drills this fall that they just were awful at, just awful we'll revisit it. And sometimes I'll revisit it in a practice. So let's say it's um, just a very basic go-to drill and you've got to get 25 total within a minute or 30 seconds. And I'll give them three tries and if they don't do it, then we're done. Like I don't believe in trying and trying and trying to get that kind of point. 
take it away from them. They're bummed that they didn't make it. And then do it again later on that practice or later on that week. And then when they achieve it, you will have shown them that if they work together as a team, they can achieve it. If they approach a drill in a half-assed manner, they're not going to achieve it. Right. Yeah, so, so that, that would be one. Uh, I mean, then it's also like a lot of social stuff. Like we do different pods and we um, rent Airbnbs and we're going to cook for each other and we're going to have good food and, you know, that's how you are a championship team. We're not going to go, you know, hide in a crummy hotel and play video games. Right. You know, I know, I know that that is a way a lot of schools do it. Uh, it doesn't seem to me that it's really good for the culture. Yeah, I mean, that's the lifestyle nutrition piece and yeah. just the contribution when people are cooking, even like the best player who, or the one of the you know lower yeah. players on the roster who didn't feel like they contributed practice that exactly. day. Exactly. That's when they can step up. Right. And you also then have, you know, I mean, everyone, it's just like a level playing field. So if you're making really great garlic bread and you can't time your cuts, people are going to remember the great garlic bread. <laughs> that's true. Right. Yeah, and it's like what Russell said: if, is there's if everybody's trying to win the practice, no matter what, then everybody has something to do. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not always playing, if you're trying to win the practice, how can you be a better teammate? Right. Um, so, with the sports psychology, you mentioned Dr. Goldberg, mm -hmm. and you mentioned you're on Twitter and you follow lots. So are there any just major uh, resources or influences when it comes to sports psychology books? Uh, you know, from what I can tell. So, so I'm, st I'm thinking about writing a book on mental toughness and ultimate. That sounds cool. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I got one, at least one more book in me. So I met with Dr. Goldberg and I said, you know, I'm teaching this stuff. I'm thinking about putting in a book. You know, I'm pretty much just stealing everything from you. And he said, well, where do you think I got it? So it's, it's, a lot, it's a lot of renaming, like you're just talking about that circle with the yeah, yeah. whatever. It, you know, from what I can tell, the sports psychologists come up with some kind of gimmick, like one guy has the surge, and one guy has the hinge, and one guy has the wah-wah-wah, yeah, you know? yeah. It's all basically the same thing. The basic thing about mental toughness is you have to stay in the moment. When you drift, you gotta come back, and you have to get to the point where you're knowing what to do and don't think about things. Right. I mean, that's basically, it's very zen. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. Yeah. And if you wanted, you know, pretty it up, I mean, I don't know what I'm gonna do when I write about stuff. Right. I'll come up with my own little Yeah, you thing. got to. You know, there's a couple things I've invented, but... It's like me calling yin-yang, I call it zen-jam. Yeah, know, it's, right. We just put our own yeah. know, style. So that's, that's what I can... Uh, yeah. And I mean, then there's some great... You know, I've read um, John Wooden's book, Phil Jackson's book, John Wooden's books, Phil Jackson's books, Born to Run, which is a great book, um, Mind Gym, which is a little dated, but that has it's a, a lot of short pieces. And there's a million pods, podcasts to listen to. Nice. Maybe I have to yeah. get Dr. Goldberg on the podcast. Oh, you should. That would be cool. He is, he is fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So community questions wise, there you go, Logan. He asked a favorite book. Um, so Amber and Leanne, uh, two players that you may know. Yeah, I do. Um, Amber's a Nutsy coach, correct? Nutsy coach, graduate from the high school. I remember specifically when she came into my classroom after school one day, as a 16-year-old, said, told me she made fruit. I was like, wow. 
she's one of the ones I want to get on the podcast. I told when I was doing yeah. the brute intake lecture the other day, I'm like, I, you're all heroes. I want to interview every one of mm -hmm. you. But Amber might be one of the first ones because how amazing. 13 years on Brute Squad started as a, as a 16 year old. Right. It's nuts. And even just this last season, I mean, I've never seen her make so many explosive uh, grabs in short space. It's just she's moving better than ever. It's nuts. It's so she inspiring. Is, yeah. Was she, was she always that kind of super driven? Yeah, always super driven, really good athlete. I mean, I wasn't surprised that she made Brute. I was kind right. of astounded, but I wasn't surprised. You know what I mean? Right. I wasn't surprised. Yeah, she's a fantastic person, fantastic coach. Like if I could get her, um, you know, the problem is that a lot of these very talented women have careers. Yeah, you problem. know what I mean. Yeah. The talented young men do not, and or ha or are parsing together uh, careers. So we had Amber this last year. One session we had uh, Amber, Chris Kocher, Jimmy Mickle, and it was just you know an all star cast of counselors and you know hopefully we'll replicate it this year these dang careers it, I'm always thinking like what would be possible if we could just put more energy into our recovery or our training and then it's they all work full-time jobs and they still I get know. it done it's absolutely incredible they're just heroes but it's like I just always think what if you know what yeah. if you know like what, what Jimmy's done this past year like you know going and just traveling the world and playing ultimate with Chris like right. and he's Playing better than ever, it's incredible, and I feel like that's really good for the sport to see a couple full-time yeah. athletes. We haven't seen a lot of full-time athletes women's division yet. No, that's need, because they need a league. Yeah, that's part part of it. Right, but still, if somebody was just crazy enough to go, you know what? I'm gonna quit my job for a year, and I'm gonna go all in. I'm trying to be the best possible athlete, captain, mm -hmm. uh, player I could be. I just like, why not? You only live once. Like, who's gonna do it? You know? Just, yeah. Well, he's crazy these enough. motivated young women with careers are not going to do it. Yeah, well, let's see. I hear though that uh, I hear Jimmy's coaching a high school team. Oh, good. This spring. Uh huh. I think that's just amazing. That's so cool. Yeah, he's, uh, he's amazing. And I'm sure they're still going to test him. Yeah, that's just, uh, that's what their job. Developmentally, it's appropriate to push back against your coaches, but yeah, it's like Mr. Phil. I know. <laughs> I know. Phil's one of the athletes on. Uh, Zoo disc that he's yeah. just I know he's in my life to uh, to push me and I, I like yeah it. that's good yeah it's good so they so okay, they, so, yeah. they so asked two questions so uh, the first one is as a coach how do you decide how much to impose your will on the team versus letting the captains develop as leaders it's a great question yeah I could write a book on that <sighs> my answers are all so trite but still true mm -hmm. if you've got really good communication. You can do anything. You can collaborate with the captains. You can uh, go through all the duties that need to be done, divide them up, you know, work on them. Um, all the problems that we have had in terms of leadership with Zoo has been because the communication has fallen apart. And there'll be, you know, these silly group me's. There's this group me and that group me, and everyone's discussing, and and sometimes it doesn't get connected. Um, we just went through a, a couple of weeks of that. It was not. It was. It was painful in some ways. And then we had a two and a half hour conference call with Russ and me and our three captains. And now we're cruising. So I think there's part of that. Um, obviously, when you are coaching high school kids, 
they're minors and you have to be more hands-on, like to the point of probably driving them crazy, um, but you just have to because you are legally obligated to be a mandated reporter in case something, you know, they tell you about something and, um, and you just have to. College is a little bit trickier because you do want them to become good leaders and the best way you learn is through experience and yet I just cannot sit back and watch them make dumb mistakes because it's gonna take away from the team and time. So for example, we've got one very motivated guy who's great and he wants to put together a program for regionals and get businesses to give ads for the program. It's never gonna work. I've done it before, I've gone from store to store to store, maybe they'll give you 10 bucks, maybe 20, maybe they'll give you a coupon, maybe they'll never answer your calls or emails, which is more likely, and uh, it's a waste of energy. So in those kind of things, I'm like, yeah, we're not doing that. I've done that before. In terms of, uh, let's say the captains are concerned about a player in terms of um, their commitment or their life choices or whatever, I would let them be the first line of discussion. And I would sit with them and say, you know, here's the kind of things that can happen. Here's what you have to watch out for. Here are some phrases you can use. Um, meet with this person for half an hour. Let us know how it goes. And if the coaches need to step in, we'll step in. You can't do that in high school. Coaches have to step in right away. Right. Um, so I think it kind of, it just kind of matters. Yeah, it always comes back to kind of the context and it depends, but that's, that's a gem of a quote with good condition or with good communication you can do anything right Are there discussion strategies to the other way yeah just we want to have discussion before decisions um, strategies to communicate better yeah I mean you know I hear Stanford women the captains meet every week and then they let the coaches know what's going on if there's something they can't deal with or they're concerned about um, I think that's too often and you know, I think with electronically we can do a lot. One of our rules, which we started doing last year, which we have to revisit, is that our discussions in our group meet are only about logistics. And if we have to have a deeper discussion about what's going on, we have to do that in person. So we don't want to be, um, we want to get out ahead of things, we don't want to be re reactive, but sometimes things happen and there's a couple of high energy, uh, emails that get, I mean, uh, texts that get exchanged, and we try to avoid that because then you know, you know what it's like when you get a bad set of texts going yeah. down. So, um, so we have those th in place. You know, I mean, I remember during games, you meet with your captains before games. Um, yeah, we do. Just consistent communication. Yeah. Consistent. But but at a tournament, we're really pretty much like, let's see what we got. Because we want the captains to perform. We don't want the captains to be performing and thinking about how so-and-so isn't cutting right. That's our job. Right. So as much as we can give them the, the leisure to be knowing and not thinking, that's what we do. That's a really hard thing for a captain. I know. I know. But if the captains trust the coaches, it's a little bit easier. Right. 
yeah, that comes down to you saying, here's what I need from you, and here's what our job is, so yes. we don't need you to worry, yeah. just go out and, and perform and be a you know, leader by example. Right. Easier said than done, though, because you know, captains want to make sure that they're doing a nice job, and they're usually very alpha and driven, so they're going to you know, want to give and give and give, and a lot of times I've seen captains end up getting sick or getting overtrained oh. at the wrong time leading up yeah. to the tournament. Absolutely. And that's where these strategies of being able to, uh, to relax and, and you know, be mindful and come in. I mean, with our captains, if we don't have the three of them playing at 90% of what they can do, almost all the time, we're not going to be able to achieve what we want to achieve. Right. They have, they have to be given, um, they have to be given that. Do you believe that the captains are like always the best players or no? Um, no, but maybe always the most important players. Right. Yeah, I read a really good book called Captain Class mm -hmm. last year. It's completely changed my game going into the Human Swag Championship last year because it just talked about how a lot of times the captains aren't the best players, but they're the some of the biggest contributors. They're kind of like the glue right. that keeps everybody together. Yeah. And I think a lot of times leaders think that they also need to be the star player. And a lot of times that's not what's best for the team. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. There's another question they asked. Yeah. How do you think that fitness training dovetails with mental toughness on and off the field? Fitness training, lifting, speed agility. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the more fit you are and trained for our sport, the more tools you're going to have in order to be able to, to play well. Um, you know, so, so, you know, to me, you know, appropriate fitness training for ultimate goes right along with having a strong mental toughness program, working on your throws, um, being a good teammate, watching film, understanding uh, what kind of offense we're running, um, and I don't think, well, and I think you can do that uh, the best by being the most fit and being the most mentally tough. Like, I think you need both of them, uh, you know. Yeah, it's all balance. Yeah, I mean, you can, you also, I mean, in terms of, of the training you're doing, you can't, you've gotta have people being mentally tough doing your training because you don't want them to have acid because they're not gonna get what they need. Yeah, that's such a balance though because I need mindfulness first and that's the problem with a lot of ultimate players is they always want to go hard and it's an asymmetrical yeah, yeah. sport so we end up getting a lot of injuries and it's like wait I need you to go all the way back to the beginning and just chill and teach you how to meditate I mean a good example is Bo I was really proud of the work that I did with Bo last year he was at 80% for two seasons because mm -hmm. he's so driven I mean he just does not feel pain he'll he will go as hard yeah. as he wants but that you know was potentially gonna end his career and so a lot of the training I did with him was just the Zen stuff, like long meditations, saunas, re-release work. Yeah. So it's a it's a balance there too. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay, cool. So this one's from Russ. Um, what is something that during your first year of coaching that you found to be true that has been true throughout your whole career? Well, that's a good one. <laughs> My first year of coaching, I well, flick force is really good. Yeah. Um, so many things wrong <laughs> um, oh, you could just tell us that like, no 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 I think I think the thing that is I think this is this is true for teaching and obviously coaching is that um, 
you have to have some kind of personal connection with each player that you coach. And I remember when I was getting trained to teach, uh, one of the professors said, you need to talk to every student every day when they come into your classroom. Now that's way easier when you have 18 kids. Sometimes when I've had, when I've had 30 kids, that's more difficult. But that's like one of the things, I don't know if you've seen that videos, the videos where the teachers come and do all the different hand, uh, hand slaps with the kids as they come yeah. in, they all have that kind of stuff. I love that, love that because that's, so I would always, or try to be at the door, hey, how was, the, how was your game? Oh, how'd that theater tryout go? Et cetera, et cetera. And then I used mainstream sports all the time just to get you know people talking, um, talk about my animals, whatever, just so, so it is that personal connection. Um, yeah, I think that that, I learned that early on in my coaching and teaching and that is still as true as the day is long. Isn't that challenging though when you have to set up the practice, lead the practice, or the, the teaching? Like it's just so many things at once. Like, you know, I, I am thinking when you say that, gosh, I need to do a better job when I'm coaching these groups. Like I have a group on Thursday, but I'm the only strength coach and I have to come in, I have to make sure that everything's set up, that you know, the I'm thinking so much about executing the actual program, and then to go in and actually make those connections with every player throughout when we only have two hours. Yeah, it may be a little bit different with Brute because they are contracting with you for that two hours of your expertise. Right. Okay, you're not coaching them to a title. Right. You're not trying to get them to all pass your class. So I think you're more on the information thing. Right. I think that when you're playing in your beach ultimate tournaments, you naturally do that. I think right. that's different. Right. So for today, you know, it can just be like, you know, a really quick thing. I probably sort of 24 guys here. Uh, maybe I talked to 15 today, just kind of like, you know, checking in with them. Just to, maybe not, you know, why not? Yeah. Um, and then I'll do more this afternoon. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple that I haven't really connected with since we got back. And, you know, it's like, how does your semester look? And, and plus, I do individual one on one meetings. So. Um, so yeah, I think that's the, that's the truth for me. Do you find you spend a lot of your time outside of coaching actually thinking about your athletes individually? Oh yeah, a, a ridiculous amount of time. Mm -hmm. They have no idea. Right. And I have a really good uh, relationship with a lot of them. So since they're college kids, they'll start texting me at like 11.30 at night. Like, hey, I had a hard time with it, what do you think? I'm like, I think I'm going to bed. I think I'm gonna be 65 next month. And I'm not texting your 21-year-old ass. Airplane mode. Yeah, I can't. I know. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, that's you know, you have different you have different teams every year. And that was a longer lesson I I learned. But um, I mean, what's the point in doing it if you're not connecting? Right. Right. Yeah. That's what we all crave. That's what right. we all want. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So this one comes from Brett. Um, <laughs> Who I'm gonna see in an hour? Can't wait. He's getting strong. Um, he made the U24 team too. I know. Yeah. He's a good player. He's one of your coaches as well, right? Uh, I think he might be coaching the women. I don't really know. Okay. okay, cool. So he says, "How has your coaching style changed transitioning from Amherst to UMass and during the you know clubs, uh, world's clubs, and some of these other experiences?" Uh, well, I think. How has my coaching experience, or 
coaching what? Well, it was two part questions. Yeah. How has your coaching experience changed from you know transitioning from Amherst to UMass? But the second piece might be easier to answer. And you know, from all these experiences, what were some of those valuable uh, experiences and takeaways that you've had? Yeah. So one of the main reasons I wanted to quit coaching high school was the inordinate amount of paperwork I had to do. Twenty pieces of paper for every kid. I just could, and, and I was an English teacher, so I had all those other papers, and I just I couldn't deal with it anymore. Uh, I have wonderful parents from the high school; they're still friends of mine, and I had unbearable uh, helicopter parents that made me want to not not coach there anymore. And I, and I was just done. I was just done. You know, the part about and I've talked to you about this a couple of times now. Um, it's exhausting to be in charge of kids, let's say take them to a tournament, flying tournament, and have to worry about things. And um, now I still worry, but I'm not uh, legally responsible, so that is really freeing. Um, I think I overestimated how much freedom they could have in terms of coming up with a, let's say just offense. They still need, they just, you know, I mean, they just need constant reminding about how to make the highest percentage throw and catch. Um, I don't know, it's like, it's a weird, you know, it, I mean, develop, again, developmentally, college men think they know everything, and that's fine. I don't feel like they're disrespectful at all to me anymore. There have been times when they have been. Um, and it becomes exhausting, I think, for me. You know, is it because I'm a woman? Is it because I'm older? Is it because I coach high school and they, you know, they want to have a narrative like, oh, she's a high school coach. You know, she runs a camp. She wants us to be like a camp. You know, that kind of stuff. You know, that kind of narrative bullshit is, is a way for them to have control over things that they think are important, but they can't have control over the tough stuff. So I'm hyper aware of it. Um, you know, having Russell as a coach and he and I being pretty much exactly on the same page on everything has made it really much better. Um, yeah, I mean, it's still challenging. It's, cha it's challenging in the same way and in different ways. And I think one of the things that was easier about coaching high school is that these kids like had their parents there helping them out, like making sure they had food and making sure they you know knew where their cleats were and blah blah blah. You know they get to college and it's like huh, I don't know, huh, you know, and that's effing annoying. Oh my god. Yeah. So I don't know if that really answers it. Yeah, it does. That's good. You know, but um, but I do want to say one thing that I think is really interesting is. And Russell has told me this about you got to watch out for the narratives that are out there that people try to uh, either put on you to uh, you know so for example um, we really don't want them to read any online stuff about us during the season because it is based on nothing and I mean at the at best it's based on watching one or two games of us of ours and seeing how we finished in a tournament but. No one knows anything other than the people on the team and the coaches. 
and it's one of my gripes in Ulti World, and I've said this to them a lot, is they need to coach, because they have no idea what it's like to coach and try to get teams to produce. And they just always take the easy shots, and a lot of times they're wrong, and um, so the more we can keep them away from that, the better it is. And they want it so badly, they want, oh, I'm, I'm in the player of the year chatter for, oh my lord, it's just so dumb. Yeah. And the analogy I look, I, I say is like, okay, I went to the bathroom and written on the wall is that, is, uh, you know, Zoo Disc is a horrible ultimate team. <laughs> That's true. I mean, it's not really, you know what I mean? Like, why give any more credence to what they're writing than what's on the bathroom wall? Right. This is not, if my ultimate world friends read this, this is not gonna make them happy. Right. But their job is to put together a narrative. Right. And I think our job is to not, not do that. Right. So it's really hard to not pigeonhole kids, but we work very hard at it. Right. Yeah, that's a good tip just in general, just not caring yeah. so much what people think or not going into that. I'm surprised you use Twitter so much. Like that's one place that sometimes I just get like, seems sometimes neg negative to me because just it seems, I don't know, very it is. It's very, yeah. I like it because I follow a lot of black women activists and right. they're, they've taught me a lot. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I post, I post some, some things more political than others on Twitter. Um, yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's just like I'm, I'm everybody's their own unique self. And sometimes mm -hmm. when you're constantly on social, especially when you do yeah. something like what we do when we're out in the public eye, it's like, it's easy to want to please people or respond to yep. those narratives, and it's when I do that too much, it just takes away from me being truly authentic. Yeah. So, um, okay, cool. A couple more questions. We said we try to keep it under ninety minutes. Yeah. Um, okay. Unfortunately, we could go uh, all day. But Tyson, who's the ultimate coach, um, asked. He wanted to know if you have any kind of process through your season in terms of like when do you teach throwing, when do you introduce different offenses, defenses, and then when. How do you teach, do you decide which player to put in which position? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, well, I will die on this hill. You have to teach offense first. And I've coached however many seasons. And every once in a while I'd say, oh, let's, choose, let's coach defense first. Let's teach defense first. And it's always been a failure. Um, and that's what we're doing now with Zoo. It's taken, for me, it's taken too long to teach them their offense. We will be going into defense next week, probably next three weeks before Queen City. Um, so I would definitely say that. I think that uh, players need to throw more on their own. Uh, ben Banyas, my friend from Pittsburgh, has a saying, throw every day. And I think that that really... I think that's Jonathan Neely who said that. No, I think it was Ben. I don't know. I think ben a lot of physique players probably. Anyway, I've got bumper stickers say throw every day. Um, yeah, they need to throw more. They always need to throw more. We've got really, really accomplished throwers on our team, and they need to throw all the time. Um, I try, again, this is part of like the developmental part of the team. I really try hard not to pigeonhole people early on. Uh, we did go to O&D lines tentatively this week, and part of it is they really wanted it. I mean, Russ and I could go to, you know, through Easterns with no O&D line. Uh, maybe not Easterns, but they really want it, so we're getting, you know, so that's part of the compromise. Uh, but, you know, we'll have practices where 
We'll switch O&D where we'll have our cutters have to handle and the handlers have to cut. You know, you're just always trying to develop a larger view of, of what their role is. Um, and then in terms of, you know, we'll go back to less is more. Like, let's do simple things really, really well. Rather than, like when I hear a team says, oh, we have five different zones and three different junks and, you know, a, a book versus a pull plays. I'm like, yeah, okay. So now you're like the NFL. Does that make you feel more legitimate? Because you don't have enough time to perfect all that stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so we will, you know, this year we'll have, we'll have a, you know, less than 10 pull plays probably. We will have a zone with variations. We'll have one junk, maybe two, or a junk with variations. Um, you know, all the forces that we need. Uh, horizontal and vertical, side stack. You know, like let's just do those really well. Um, and, and then again, also in terms of teaching, you know, you've got to realize that, as I said, you start with offense. So maybe tomorrow or Thursday, we've been doing offense all week, we're going to really amp up the defense, and the offense is going to go down, and the defense is going to go up. Like, our offense is good right now because we're not playing great D. So you have to realize that these pistons are going to happen. You bring this up, this goes down. You bring this bottom up, this goes down. Uh, hopefully by the time you get to the season where you have to perform, everything's I love that pistons, that's a cool analogy. Yeah. Um, and I used to be so frustrated when, you know, wow, we've been working on offense and now we're going to do D and now our offense doesn't work. Well, that's how it works. That's how it should work. Are there certain qualities, characteristics that you're looking for in deciding which player is going to be a cutter versus a handler versus defense? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think pretty much whatever's going to be straightforward. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, you know, well, he can't be on the O line because he can't throw through a tough mark. Um, so that's something I would look in terms of, of uh, who's going to be on the O-line. But you know, everyone on the O-line has to play D, and everyone on the D-line has to play O. So we've got to improve everyone's overall game. Right. Nice. OK, so now just regarding the sport of Ultimate as a whole, mm -hmm. I'd be really curious to hear just how you think the sport has changed Mm -hmm. the, you know, the first piece, and then what you're excited about or skeptical about as we move forward. Oh, so yeah, yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, okay, so I will say in the past, if someone asked me what's ultimate going to be like in the next three years or five years, I would know. Like, I would just know on some level. And, and I was right, because, you know, just things grow, you know. Now, I don't really know. I don't, I, you know, I'd love to be able to say, like, I would love to see the Premier Ultimate League take off, and I'm certainly going to put a lot of energy behind that. Um, I don't know if the men's league is going to keep going. Uh, I know it's been a success in a lot of communities and not a success in others. So I don't know about that. Um, I'm not 100% amped about the Olympics because I think that if you do any kind of research on what the Olympics does to communities and cities after before they are there and after they leave. I don't think it's something that is really value driven, you know. Um, so I don't know about that. I, I, don't, I, 
mean, I think, like sometimes I think that the men are going to or should break away from USAU and do their own thing. And USAU should focus on the women's uh, women club, still do both college and youth. Because in some ways I think that uh, it's a better product or a more wide-reaching product. Um, but again, I, I mean, I wouldn't put money on it. I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm hoping to, I mean, I know I'm going to expand my brand. I know we're going to go into, like I said, we're going to be coaching, coaching coaches. You know, I pretty much am a grassroots person in terms of getting things done. Uh, and uh, we'll see how long I coach UMass men. Thanks. So cool. Well, let's wrap it up. The, okay. In terms of your offerings and where we can find you and uh, exciting things, is there a Twitter handle uh, for you, uh, email address, Nutsy website? Like, what's the kind of main? Yeah. So Nutsy web website is nutc.net. If you really want to um, follow along, the, I, I'm most current on Instagram, which is Nutsy Graham. I don't know if there's a underscore there. I think there is. I'm in there. Underscore. Um, Tina Booth at Gmail, two eyes and Tina, two O's and Booth. Um, and I'm on Facebook, but Facebook's on the way out. Well, cool. Well, I just, I guess, I really want to say thank you for your dedication to Ultimate. <laughs> My but pleasure. It, the reality is, Tina, like a lot of the athletes that you've influenced have come up and have been huge influences on me being That's a better awesome. person. It's awesome, but that's just like, that's why we're here on, on this earth as teachers, as coaches in many ways, is to make people better to kind of give our gifts. And it's just, it's so neat to see how much that, just this, your grassroots here and influence of these people and how much that that's just spread and uh, just done such good things for the community um, all around. So I really appreciate that. And then I appreciate what you're doing for uh, for ZooDisc and, you know, believing in me and, and uh, you know the whole side of training because I, I really think it uh, can bring a lot of value, and I'm excited to uh, to build on it. So, well, yeah, thank you so much. You know, you brought them to another level. It's it's exciting. Even today, I could see signs of the work they did with you yesterday. Right. And you know, and I didn't have to teach it because right. I don't really know how to teach right. that stuff. Yes. But, you know, it's, it's great. And the other thing I want to say, which is which is a lovely sentiment that um, you know that friends that we have in common have been influences. You know, it's not like when I was teaching Ultimate, you know, I was teaching like to love root canal surgery. You know, people love Ultimate. They love chasing a Frisbee. And those people that you're referencing, they were already really awesome people. And I was lucky to have them in my life and I'm still lucky to have them in my life. And that's how I feel about you, my friend. Nice. So you think we could maybe do this again sometime and go sure, into different things? Sure. You